know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful to have the opportunity to talk to Youngmi Kim, professor in the UW School of Journalism and Mass Communication and a faculty affiliate of the Political Science and Election Research Center. Kim's research concerns media and politics in the age of data-driven digital media, specifically the role digital media plays in political communication amongst political leaders, non-party groups, and citizens. Over the last several years, Professor Kim's work on the role of Russian interference in the 2016 election has received national and international attention. She has spent much of the first half of 2020 at the Campaign Legal Center in Washington, D.C., where she researched federal solutions to digital political advertising. We wanted to talk to Professor Kim about her research into social media, propaganda, foreign influence in U.S. elections, and the impact on the electoral process and democracy more generally. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Kim. And there's so much that we want to talk with you about. Your work is so important to this moment. So I want to start with some of your research into how Russia sought to disrupt the U.S. elections in 2016 and beyond. So first, can you tell us a little bit about your innovative research into the 2016 election using Project Data, which for our listeners, data stands for Digital Ad Tracking and Analysis. So could you just tell us a little bit about what that was and then unpack the implications of that research for the average listener interested in American politics? Okay, so Project Data is in a disciplinary research project that examines like a digital advertising, digital political advertising. So digital political advertising is very different than like a broadcast advertising, for example. First, it is very narrowly targeted. So imagine like a broadcasting advertising. If we want to put like an ad on a broadcast media, Nationally, in the, in the United States, we have only 210 media markets. So you have this uh, arbitrary groups of 200 media markets, and then you just like uh, have to put a lot of money to reach to like a specific types of voters. Let me take an example. So, like uh, for my entire career, like I have been studying passionate publics, like uh, who care about an issue because of their values or identities or like a self-interest. So let's say like a people like a Joe who cares about immigration issues so deeply because of his religious values. So he worries that like the Muslims coming to America. So he prefers a candidate who have like a strong like a position about like a, you know, immigration issue. And he strongly opposed to like immigration. But he also believes that like a mainstream media does not a good job in covering this issues that he care about. So he spends a lot of time social media like Facebook and then find some you know information sources that he thinks like it's better with his interests. And then these publics are very active, like a very interested in politics. You know, Joe described himself as a Republican, but always puts his issue ahead of his party. 
So from political campaign's perspective, they love to uh, identify and target people like Joe because they are already very deep into politics. So they are highly likely to be activated by political campaigns. So it's much easier for political campaigns to target uninterested people or even like, you know, undecided people. So they can just target like these people who are passionate about like some political issues. But the problem in the past is that these people are relatively like a small segments of the population and scattered around the country. So it was extremely difficult for political campaigns to identify and target, mobilize these types of people. But now with social media and then data-driven analytical techniques and then algorithm-based like targeting tools, political campaigns, even like any groups, like with low resource groups even, are able to identify, target, and mobilize or demobilize like, you know, particular types of people. You know, for example, like a Facebook like a provides some convenience tool, like a drop-down menus of a keyword, and then you can just like a, you know put like some keyword, even like a you know white supremacist like a organization's names or you know the group leaders' names, or and then you can reach like a specific people in a really precise way, and then even like a, you know the algorithm would amplify. And then find the people like a Joe, like a Joe look alike one, Joe look alike two, Joe look alike three, and the like. So that motivated me to study who are taking advantage of this data-driven, digitally mediated, and algorithm-based you know, media environment, and because there are increased opportunities for like a political groups to, to target like a specific types of people. But the problem is that digital advertising, unlike the broadcasting advertising, is almost impossible to like, study digital political advertising because like, digital ads are shown to like, targeted individuals only. So that means it's almost impossible to like, publicly monitor you know, who are targeting whom like, with what messages in terms of digital. So, what we did is that we developed an app that works like an ad blocker, but instead of blocking the ads, it just identified the digital uh, ads uh, with some you know, heuristics and then transferred all the information associated with the ads like, to my research server. So we can identify where these messages are coming from, by tracking the, the landing pages of the ad. If you click like ads, it will lead you to like some you know, advertisers, like sources. So we track, like, you know, by tracking like, the landing pages, we're able to identify where these messages are coming from. We also, this is like a user-based app. So, you know, they're volunteered, like a participant are asked to use this app like a before, about like a six weeks before the election day in uh, 2016. And then we did the survey of these people in terms of their demographics and then political attitudes. So by combining the ads they are exposed to and the, the responses, like a survey responses of these like a, you know, the app users, we can sort, sort of like a reverse engineer the targeting profiles. Like we can see who are targeted with what kind of messages, by whom. So that's what we did. And then, so the study, we 
identify the gavartia. That like a study is like a stilt media. That study is based on five million Facebook ads exposed to nearly ten thousand participants who represented like a U.S. voting age population. And then what it found is that we identified that uh, half of the sponsors like these issue campaigns like a de- divisive issue campaigns are suspicious groups like uh, groups who do not have any public uh, footprint. So we looked at like a you know federal election commission databases because like, most of the groups you know who are doing like a political advertising have the filing you know, have like a filing requirement. So we started with this, you know matching these groups like a sponsor information with that FPC data. And if we, we don't find it, we use like IRS-based databases because some of the nonprofit organizations are exempt from filing requirement, but like they are tax-exempt organizations. So if they have a PAC, we would be able to identify. Um, and then we use like other like databases, like a news archives or databases of the lobbying groups and then all those kind of things. And if we still can't not find and cannot identify like who they are, then we classify those groups as like a suspicious group. And then like a, later, like we set aside these suspicious groups for about a year. And then later in 2017, when the House Intelligence Committee released the information about Internet Research Agency, uh, a Kremlin-linked information, disinformation campaign operation, we matched like a meta information, like these suspicious groups with the information that like, provided by like, the House Intel Committee. And then we found that uh, one out of six our suspicious groups, like it turned out to be the IRA group. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, that honestly, that sounds a, a, a little bit scary in a way that such a large proportion of these suspicious groups had ties to Russia. What do you think these findings mean for the integrity of the U.S. electoral process? Yeah, that's a very good question. So suspicious groups, like, you know, we still don't know uh, what the rest of the suspicious groups are exactly. And I have some aspect like speculations and hypothesis, but so basically these, you know, these are unidentifiable groups. So, and they did not file a report to FAC, even though our data collection uh, fell directly onto so-called like FAC window. Like if uh, any groups who were doing like a political advertising 60 days prior to the election and have uh, have certified a report. So they did not file a report. They're not registered with FAC. And we don't know who they are exactly. They only exist in the Facebook, basically. So that means we don't know who are trying to influence us. You know, you might have heard about like a dark money groups. You know, Their donors are known. These are like all like unregistered groups or nonprofits. And then as long as they don't spend like a 50% more of the, their revenue on political campaigns, like these groups are classified as non-political uh, organizations. So they can get away from all this like election regulations or campaign finance rule. So some of the suspicious groups might be like a dark money group, but regardless, we just don't know who they are. And then basically, like, you know, when we make a voting decision, we should be like fully informed and know about who are trying to like influence, but there is no way we can find who they are. That is very alarming. Of course. And naturally, there's a lot of parallels between your research here 
and the 2016 findings uh, of the Mueller report regarding, um, as you mentioned, the internet recent, the, the Kremlin connected internet research agency, and of course, the Mueller team eventually indicted a number of Russian nationals who were attempting to influence our elections. Yet, there hasn't been a lot done to address this issue at the federal level in terms of shoring up the security or integrity of U.S. elections from outside or specifically Russian influence. Why do you think this is the case? Yeah, I also wonder about that (laughs) because, yeah, uh, you're right. Like, no law adequately addresses digital advertising, and no law adequately addresses like you know, voting election interference. We have like a, some you know campaign finance like a FECA and uh, FARA like a voting uh, you know voting actors have to voting agents agents have to like, register, but like we have this like a legal framework, but those are not enforceable because we don't have like a monitoring mechanism. And I don't find any philosophical, legal, or practical basis for not having any regulatory framework uh, for digital political advertising, particularly those are sponsored by unknown, unidentifiable groups. There has been some effort uh, at the Congress, like uh, there have been some like uh, bills introduced, but those failed to like pass. So I think like the in the current political environment is too polarized, and sometimes even like uh, you know the, the issues like this, like uh, this is about this is not a partisan issue. This is about like having voters have like information for their voting decision, and this is about like a democracy. But this issue is considered to be a partisan issue. And then that might be why we don't have any federal level regulatory framework yet. And then speaking of the voters themselves, what have you made of the public response to some of these findings? Do you feel like there's been an appropriate level of, say, discontent or outrage with the revealings of Russian and other influencers into our elections? Or do you think that there hasn't, say, been the outpouring of emotions that one might expect? Yeah, I think, you know, compared to, we didn't know about like a Russian election interference in the you know, 2016 election until 2017. And then, you know, Mueller report was released like in 2018. Senate report was like released just like, you know, you know, volume one, volume two, like volume three, like the full packet was released like, you know, just this year. So, but I believe that, like, you know, the public now is aware of like there's a threat and then especially like a Russian active measures and then tech platforms also are doing like a better job and then they are better better prepared and I believe like you know intelligence community and governments are also like a better prepared yeah it's just like we don't have like a conspicuous like a guidelines because of the lack of regulatory framework so that raises an issue but at least like a I think that the people are aware of this issue, which is very important, which is very important the first step. Of course. And now I want to move forward a little bit in time because, you know, we've been talking a lot about the 2016 election, but of course, we're in the middle of an election season right now with the 2020 presidential elections really only days away. 
And as you've mentioned, we have, there hasn't been a lot of federal legislation taken to set up the necessary framework that might be necessary to protect our elections from such interference. But now we do have a raised level of public awareness. Tech platforms are taking certain measures to try and curb this. And in general, we've seen reporting from outlets like Time mentioning that, that there has been some diplomatic talks between the United States and the Kremlin regarding election meddling. Heading into 2020, how safe and confident do you feel in the integrity of our elections and its immunity from this type of influence? And additionally, do, you, do we have evidence that the Russians and other suspicious sources are trying to spread disformation again in 2020, just as they did in 2016? Yeah. So, you know, back in 2019, was like a September 2019, while I was like just monitoring like, you know, social media like, as usual, I found some suspicious accounts that just looked like a, you know, IRA. And so like, some of the tactics are the same, like, you know, they targeted both like the left and the right with like a wedge issues, like immigration, LGBT issues like a feminism was like a new issue and racial conflict which is like a running theme of like a Russian election interference campaign and particularly like just prior to like the Iowa caucus like they were heavily focusing on breaking the coalition you know democratic side so criticizing like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and like for example like Joe Biden's like inappropriate touching and then these are raised by, I guess, you know, groups that get posed as like a liberal groups. So at the surface level, it looks like self-criticism, but in fact, it is a very effective, like a coalition breaking strategy. So that is actually like, you know, the common like a tactics like Russians used uh, in 2016. So this, uh, this was a similar. You know, for example, another like a tactic is like a, you know this coalition breaking strategy is like a third party candidate promotion. So back in 2016, we found that there is like a promotion of like a Bernie Sanders uh, and then Jill Stein targeting likely Clinton voters so that you know it breaks the coalition of like a democratic side. However, we did not find any evidence that it promotes like a, you know Gary Johnson targeting likely Trump voters. So that way, again, you know, IRA helped uh, the Trump, you know, then candidate. Uh, so while promoting uh, Trump agenda, like anti-immigration, nationalism, and but like, they targeted, on the other hand, like they targeted likely Clinton voters and then tried to break the coalition. We found like the same strategy like, back in like, you know, just before the Iowa caucus. Currently, we are just like a collecting data, so we don't know yet. But I'm I'm not relieved. <laughs> I'm I'm concerned. You know, there might be still like a foreign actors like attempts to interfere in the election. You know, Russians are always persistently like here. It's not like they come and go occasionally. And but like particularly during the election time, they try to create like a confusion among the public and delegitimize the election system or, you know, try, you know, mobilize people to boycott the election, you know, things like that. And then in this election, you know, in these times of uncertainty, I expect that like, the Russians might be exploiting, you know, this like times of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. That's 
you know, that's not necessarily relieving to hear, but I think it's very important to hear. So uh, in, encouraging all everyone to remain, remain diligent and aware of the kind of things that they're consuming and seeing online. But one kind of thing that I want to ask to follow up on that is that, you know, we're talking a lot right now about these strategies that we're seeing where the Russians either use misinformation, disinformation, or by just adding flame to the fire on already controversial and dividing topics to just further break these coalitions and just create rage in the American public. But the other side of this influence strategy could potentially be an attack on election infrastructure in and of itself. And while the Mueller report on IRA influence in 2016 concluded that, you know, the Russians didn't say change anyone's votes or anything like that, it did conclude that they were able to get inside some voter registration systems and look at voter data rules there. And the way they described it is that they were potentially scouting for some kind of, say, future actual attack. So with that in mind, do you expect an attack on actual U.S. election infrastructure in this election at some point? You know, it is it is plausible. And in fact, like Microsoft just announced that, you know, uh, the political groups at both sides packed by like, some suspicious actors. We don't know who they are yet, but there has been like a hacking attempt. It was not like a particularly, uh, you know, election infrastructure. It is more like a political organizations and then parties and, and the like. And, and the political figures. So we don't know yet, but, like, but FBI director just like testified the FBI did not find any evidence for election interference like hacking. Well, in fact, like Russians active measures are like three types of things. Like one is this, like infrastructure hacking. That is more like a hardware side. And the second thing is the hack and dump. Like, you know, you hack the DNC, uh, the Russians like hack like a DNC and then dump like a Podesta email through WikiLeaks. And the third one is this disinformation campaigns or election interference campaigns in the social media. And I think, you know, the second and third one are highly likely to happen because again, like at this election, there's a lot of uncertainty around mail-in voting. And then, you know, the Pew Research just like released the, um, the findings that only like a 25% of American citizens like are well aware of the the mailing voting, so I guess, you know, have we ever, I guess, you know, fully, like a hundred percent adopted like a voting, mailing voting method like for the presidential election, only 25% of Americans correctly answered the question. And then like more than half of the Americans think that the voter fraud by mailing voting method would be like a major problem or minor problem in this election. And then these are divided by, I guess, you know, partisan lines. Um, so it is possible that, you know, even before or after the election day, there might be like some, uh, you know, attempt to spread like a misinformation about the you know, voting itself and then delegitimize the election system in general. And then hack and dump is also quote unquote like a smart strategy because, you know, we can like, is like a legit organization. Again, it's a concert to be like a you know, media organization. So 
by dumping all this information in front of like an investigative journalist like is and then you know they don't have to like do more you know they don't have to create like a fake account or posing as Americans you know things like that and then we didn't have any we didn't put any punishment on those two things I mean like there was like a sanction but I personally I could believe that you know Russians did not take like a hard lesson from the past so it, the sanction was like a more of like a symbolic so I'm not sure you know from like a Russian's perspective why not so you know, there was no hard lesson and it seems to be you know very successful like everyone talked about it and then people are divided now people are aware of it but I guess some people still don't believe that like it's you no know, election in inter- Russian election interference that happened or oh it was just like a few like a basic post and then you know just like a downplay the role like a you know russian election interference campaigns in the social media so i suppose a a light slap on the wrist isn't going to make them stop putting their hand in the cookie jar i suppose (laughs) um (laughs) but then of course here on the 1050 podcast talking about the 2020 election We can't talk about the 2020 election without talking about Wisconsin, as it's a crucial swing state. So I want to ask, how have these outside influencers targeted swing states, and have they targeted Wisconsin specifically? And if so, what might be, say, like the content of how one of these suspicious sources tries to manipulate different demographics here in Wisconsin. Yeah, it's like one of the major findings of the Steel's Media paper, that study, was that these are suspicious groups, like unidentifiable groups who do not have any public like a footprint, targeted like a battleground states, including like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. So Wisconsin and Pennsylvania like are the top two states are targeted by this like unknown group. And Again, if you think about like why they did that is like, you know, it's certainly related to the nature of a digital advertising. Wisconsin is one media market, but on the other hand, Wisconsin is very politically divided, you know, and then rural and urban divide. We have a major divide and we also have uh, a lot of like a so-called like a cross pressures. So those who care about an issue, particular issue, and then their issue position is not well aligned with, aligned with their party position on that issue. So for example, democratic con owners, those are, we call them like, you know, cross pressured because their position on the gun issue is not aligned with like their party's position. If that happens, like these are the people who are most like a vulnerable to you know, this like outside groups like a target. So in Wisconsin, like what we found, like for example, targeting white voters and primarily like sent anti-immigration messages and then mobilize them to turn out to vote. But then targeting African Americans in an urban area, they are saying neither candidates will serve us. The election doesn't matter. Don't vote. I didn't go to the poll things like that, like it's a border suppression. And then you can do this simultaneously without being caught because of a digital advertising, because of the nature of a digital uh, advertising. That, I mean, that's pretty crazy and kind of scary to see how it manifests itself right here. I mean, for me, that really humanizes the issue and geez, it makes you look at it right in the face, you know? But with all of that kind of scary stuff, 
I, I want to talk a little bit then about some possible solutions. So how, hopefully how we can solve this problem. So I want to ask, what are both your long-term policy recommendations that you found based on this research? And also in the short term, how can the average American or even our listeners try to counteract some of this influence of social media disruption in the elections? So I emphasize like a multi-level solution. It's not just like a borders, you know, media literacy. We need to be aware of these issues. We need to know about, you know, how like a digital advertising works. We need to be like a skeptical about the information we are getting from social media, for example. So always check like multiple sources and cross compare. And then get a little bit like you know skeptical about what you hear from like a you know social media and so like do your own uh, research. That's what we could do. And tech platforms like a social media companies you know, now they have like a self-regulatory transparency measures. Like for example, they are not taking any ads from foreign actors when they take like a political advertising. They verify whether the advertiser is physically like located in the United States and things like that. And then they also label the paid for by information, like who are the sponsors. Like, you know, back in like 2016, like what we found is that 55% of the sponsors did not reveal their name, the face of the ads. That means like, you know, voters have to click through to find like who they are. But now like, you know, the all major tech platforms like Facebook, Google, Twitter, you know, label and verify the sources. So these transparency measures are good, but there are a lot of like loopholes. So it is like a, the first step. And the federal level, and then there, there have been some, like some states that could try to come up with like some ruling on digital political ads, which is promising. but. Again, like at the federal level, we have nothing yet. So that would be like a long-term thing. Currently, for example, tax platforms, transparency measures, all like fall short of like a public expectation and then like facing the harsh criticism from both sides. And then Mark Zuckerberg himself is like asking for the regulation like so that they, he can have like some clear guidelines. So that would be like a long term and a federal level like a solution. All right. So it sounds like it's going to take real regulation from the federal government combined with transparency from these social media companies while the average voter has to avoid shall we say, Russian to conclusions about what they see online. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good summary. I just want to make sure that, though, like, you know, I emphasize like a regulation. I use the word like a regulation, but I'm not suggesting like a censorship. And what I propose is like a conspicuous and consistent guidelines for transparency measures. So, for example, broadcaster advertising, advertisers have to put like a disclaimer, like a paid for by information. And we all know that, you know, who are receiving like a broadcast ads. But in terms of a digital, we just don't know who are targeting whom. So clear disclaimer rules, like a paid for by information and, and then some like a digital ad archives, like, a, you know, because like a tech platforms have like a very different definitions of a political campaigns and political advertising. So what they 
have in their like, you know, political ads libraries are not consistent across like different platforms. So this like the archive archiving gets sort of like a centralized like archives of like a political ad content and then targeting information. And then federal law could provide a guide for this like a transparency measure. Well, all great things to think about. Professor Kim, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk with us today. I think this has been a great and really elucidating conversation for our listeners and for myself too. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate this. I could know the questions. Thank you. Bye. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.